Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. In order to, to love and proclaim the gospel of those on slave ships, they would themselves adopt the posture of a slave and go onto those ships and side by side share the love of God with them. In, in reading about them, it's, it strikes many people as unusual that they were universalists. They had this belief that everyone, many of them, not all, but many of them, everyone one day would be reconciled to God. And, and it's unusual because for many people, the idea that perhaps one day everyone is reconciled to God seems to undercut the legs of mission work, right? Why, why work or why work at all or why work so hard to reach people, to, to share the gospel if one day everyone everyone gets in. And yet, this belief somehow fueled their desire to sacrifice, to pursue for their whole lives to be defined by this. It's a great thing, let me tell you, you probably don't have this experience. It's a great thing when your addiction to binging true crime documentaries lines up with sermon prep. When they, when one is the same, it's just one of these like hallelujah type couple of weeks. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with this case or not. It was the late 80s, early 90s, um, in a little town in Arkansas, West Memphis, uh, the West Memphis Three. Um, there was this brutal tragedy, this horrific tragedy. Um, three children were killed. They arrested at the time. It was kind of like satanic panic. A lot of people in America were really worried about, you know, rumors of Satan worshipers in the woods making sacrifices, things of that nature. They arrested three kids who dressed in black and listened to metal. There's your first two clues, right? And they kind of laid the, the, the murder at their hands. And they were convicted. One got the death penalty. One got two, the two others got life in prison. And from the beginning, there were kind of some holes in the case, right? I don't know if you've seen this genre, but this is how it goes. Before long, you're the crack detective on the case going to... So four documentaries were made over the course of 18 years. Um, advocacy groups were created. Eventually, these, these three young men, now middle-aged men, get released from prison. New evidence comes about, right? New theories come about. But the, the story is interesting for a lot of reasons, one of which is so much of what we've been talking about the last few weeks when it, when it comes to the doctrine of hell, I, I saw kind of embodied in this story. So um, there's a, a gentleman, he was a stepfather of one of the children that were unfortunately killed, but that passed away. And, and he was very dramatic man. This town spoke an overtly religious language. So bad things happened because of the devil. Good things happened because of God. And, and very quickly, hell was invoked to really describe everything that was happening in their town and, and as part of that situation. And it was an example to me of, of what we talked about when we looked at Jesus and his use of hell language, Gehenna language. You had this stepfather, and, and he's in this ditch where the, the kids were found, and, and he, he, he uses language like this, I'm standing in hell. I'm in hell right now. And I'm like, that, that's it. I don't think it, any of us have a hard time imagining why one person might say that, why they might feel that, how they might experience that. And in fact, this is the language. Gehenna, right, was this big ditch. It was this valley where kids had been lost. And it had become this example of, of judgment and sin and destruction and, and, and the horrificness that's possible in, in this world. And then this man overcome in his faith, sought to find solace in the truth that, according to his beliefs, one day these three young men would burn in hell. 
Now, he was a little over the top. I don't think anyone watching, reading, following the story would be like, this is probably the perfect way to experience and express these views and opinions. I mean, he made mock graves for the three guys, lit it on fire, stomped on their graves, explained in great detail what they were going to suffer. It seemed as if, right, he was channeling his anger and vengeance. Once again, who could blame? I mean, you've got to say, okay, I, this is a grieving process, right? But an interesting case study in the fact that by the end of these 18 years, by the third and fourth documentaries, he now believes these three young men are innocent. Injustice was carried forth. It was was an example in humility to me. Not only is our criminal justice system not perfect, maybe we should also be careful in projecting our sense of justice onto God's own justice, and and even then projecting it into eternity. If we can be so wrong that not only can we be wrong on on such a horrific case like this and in just a few years come to change our minds, perhaps we should pump off the brakes when we come to putting people in hell right now, right? I mean, things just aren't always so cut and clear. When we talk about hell, when we've been talking about hell, lots of, of questions come I want to end this morning by focusing on this question. What does the doctrine of hell and how we believe, what we believe about hell, how does that form us and shape us as human beings and as Christians? What we do shapes who we are. We've talked about this before, liturgy, the way we worship, the things we do, the activities we partake in, the habits that we have, they shape us. They become a part of who we are. They're important in our lives. Our beliefs act this way as well. The things we believe about God, the things we believe about the church, the things we believe about the world, these things shape us. They form us. And perhaps it's the case that in many ways, what many Christians believe about hell appeals to their basest desires. Shapes them in ways that perhaps are unhealthy or even unchristlike. I want to explore the ways that different Christians think about hell and, and how that might shape them and form them as Christians as they um, are part of the church, what it means to be in the church, what our role is in the world um, that we find ourselves in. And so to do that, I want you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning as we finish out this series. Next week, we will start a new series on mental health in the gospel. It'll be great. Colossians 1, this is where uh, someone like a Moravian Brethren member would go to express his, his hope that one day all will be reconciled to God. Pretty infamous passage that's called a, a Christ hymn. Many people believe the Apostle Paul writing the letter here to the Christians in Colossae that, that he is quoting a hymn that already exists, perhaps making some changes to it. And you get here a sense for the early Christian hope, for their message. This is, this is what they believed and proclaimed and were so excited about. It's this beautiful, powerful hymn. We'll pick it up in verse 15, 15 through 20. And it reads like this. He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, 
the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now the one thing that comes through in this poem, first and foremost, is how important Jesus is. For early Christians, Jesus was everything. Jesus was their interpretive lens to their lives, to the world, to the scriptures. Everything found its beginning and end in the person and work of Christ. And this poem expresses this so beautifully. The supremacy of Christ, the the firstness, the exaltedness of Christ. And so the, the poem starts out by talking about creation. Jesus, we're told, is the one who created all things. And all here, very importantly, means all. Everything. And in case we miss it, the poem goes out of its way to explain this for us, right? He created all things up here and down there, in heaven and on earth. Things you can see, things you can't see. If it exists, where did it come from? Christ created it. Not only that, the poem then goes on to say, everything that exists only does so because he sustains it. Now, this is a a doctrine of belief that that many of us don't always focus on as much anymore. We we think God creates everything, but sometimes we can kind of assume God creates and then kind of steps back from creation, and it has its existence kind of on its own, like it self-perpetuates itself. But this is not what Christians believe. Christians believe things only exist even to this day because God actively wills them into existence. The same way things only came into existence because God wanted them to be in existence, it's the same reason they're only still here. Like, why do you and I still exist? Why is gravity still holding ourselves together? What if God decided, a couple, couple seconds, a couple minutes, I don't want this anymore? Do we have to keep existing? Well, I'd like to, but there's no like appeals court I'm going to take God to, right? There's, there's no like complaint department, cosmic trash can. God's like, send your complaints here, okay? No, he sustains all things. Everything that exists, exists because Christ brought it into existence, and because Christ continues to bring it into existence, at every second, actively holding the world together. Not only this, the poem says, but all things exist for Christ. He's the goal of everything. There's a kind of a beautiful picture here, if we think Trinitarianly, the Father, Son, and Spirit, of the Father creating the world through Christ, so Christ actively plays a role in creation according to the New Testament, but, but it's almost seen as a gift to Christ. God creates the world and goes, I want them to, to know how awesome you are. I want them to love you as much as I love you. Here's, here's a gift to you. And in 1 Corinthians, salvation is seen in kind of opposite terms. Christ defeats all of the Father's enemies, death being the last one in 1 Corinthians 15. And then he hands back creation to the Father. says, this is for you. All things submission to you. Christ creates all things, sustains all things. They're all created for him. He is preeminent truly in creation. Now, something's happened in creation. Nothing about sin or the fall really is explicitly mentioned in this poem. It's just kind of presumed by the fact that there is a reconciliation. Something's been broken and off. There's principalities and powers mentioned here. In Colossians, we're told that they're hostile to God and to his will. Right after this poem, we're told that human beings have been reconciled, so they've been alienated and hostile to to Christ and his creation. But in Christ, not only preeminent in creation, now 
preeminent in new creation. The fullness of God pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now the all here in verse 20 has a parallel very clearly to the beginning of this poem. What was created by Christ? Everything, all things. What now, because of his death and resurrection, is reconciled because of Christ? All things. The vision here is cosmic. The scope is universal. Nothing is left out. As wide as creation is in scope, so redemption, reconciliation through the death and resurrection of Christ, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now these all passages found here in Colossians, they're found in Romans, found in 1 Corinthians, found in Ephesians. There's, there's plenty of them. This is usually the driving factor for those who believe that one day all will be reconciled to Christ. They come to a passage like this and they just say, all just has to mean all for me. The logic usually goes something like this. Christ's victory is so powerful. His atoning work on the cross so effective. The love of God so convincing and beautiful that when we fully consider the end results of everything, how could anything escape the love and victory of God, the reconciliation accomplished through Jesus making peace by the blood of his cross? Now, there are people, though, of course, who don't believe this. The majority of Christians probably have a hard time with this view. And the one reason we struggle with this is because there are other parts to the Bible. There are other texts in the Bible, texts that seem to speak of judgment and punishment, that perhaps suggest this is everlasting and eternal. And so they, they might look at this text and, and they say, well, maybe we'll redefine all. And all will just be those who have faith in Christ. All will just be those who are in the church. Or they'll redefine kind of the concept of reconciliation. So this is actually the most common way for traditional Christians to interpret this passage. They'll say, to reconcile all things to God really just means to bring order to the universe. And so for believers, that means like a peaceful, beautiful, relational reconciliation. But for non-believers, it's order in the form of judgment. And so they would read this passage in such a way that to be reconciled to God could mean for people, in their view, perhaps the majority of humanity, being punished in hell. This would somehow be reconciliation to God. This seems clearly for many people to not be the easiest reading here of this passage, particularly because the reconciliation is connected to peace with God. This, this connection between reconciliation and peace being a salvific reconciliation, a reconciliation unto salvation, is something you see in the rest of Paul's letters connected frequently the book of Romans and Ephesians, elsewhere here in Colossians. For one who, who says they're Christian universalists, they'd say the idea that human beings will eternally be apart from the love of God, we find that hard to reconcile with such a cosmic and beautiful, compelling vision. And then some will say, well, perhaps God will just erase evil from existence, evil doers will go out of existence, and so all that remains in existence is reconciled to God. And this perhaps is an easier way to understand this text. 
that others say all means all. And what do we do with these other texts? Well, for many Christian universities, they'll say we, we shouldn't ignore them. We should seek to incorporate all the data, all the texts. And so perhaps passages about hell, judgment, punishment, these are a terrible but temporary fate. These can be incorporated, brought into this overall drama, this overarching narrative that we find ourselves in. This vision of Christ bringing together all things back into this beautiful relationship with the Father because of his death and because of his resurrection. Notice it's not, side, it's not outside of his death or resurrection. It's not outside of faith in Christ. It's through this particular means, through Christ's repentance in him, salvation given by grace through faith, that perhaps at the end of the day, all things will be made new. Everything that exists will be reconciled to God. And this is a hopeful belief. Many people who do believe this believe this cautiously, saying, well, obviously we don't know anything for sure. And we should take seriously these texts which suggest judgment, punishment, which give us an urgency to our decisions, to the now. And yet perhaps we should be shaped in such a way that we remain hopeful. There's a, a Christian scholar, Herman Joseph Lauder, who says this, Wondering about this question, he says, Will it really be all men who allow themselves to be reconciled? No theology or prophecy can answer this question, but love hopes all things. They cannot do otherwise than to hope for the reconciliation of all men in Christ. He goes on to say, Such unlimited hope is, from the Christian standpoint, not only permitted, but commanded. But for Christian universities, they might say, we're, we're more hopeful of Jesus than we are certain of hell. We're more hopeful in the, the beautiful, sweeping, saturating victory of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit than we could ever be of anything else. Than we could be of, of God's desire to save us. Some, some say, in, despite the, the passages in the, the, the Bible, Old and New Testament, which speak of God's desire to save every human being, perhaps it's not truly the case, and they reinterpret these passages. Or perhaps God is not able to fulfill his desire, and so they, they reinterpret passages that speak of God accomplishing his purposes, or, or they speak of free will, perhaps being this everlasting barrier between repentance and, and reconciliation of all human beings. Others say, no, we, we hope. We're hopeful. Why then, when you have these all passages, do people resist? Here's, here's my question when it comes to hell. My baseline pastoral scholar question. What is in it for you? What's your motive? What in your heart needs or doesn't need a hell? What in your view of other people or experience of other people needs or doesn't need a hell. However you define it, whatever length you think it is, whatever exact experience you think it contains. A desire to be faithful to Scripture is probably the, the best one that you have here. I think that's a pure motive. And yet there are many different Scriptures, a diverse group of Scriptures, uh, many different ways of interpreting Scriptures. Perhaps you can be faithful to all the texts while still holding out this hope for all human beings. But for some of us, the purpose a traditional view of hell fulfills is a little bit darker. 
For some of us, it, as I said earlier, kind of appeals to the basis instincts in humanity. To see others punished for our perceived understanding of their injustice. Punished in a way that they can't be redeemed. Punished in a way that's final. Punished in a way that's revenge. Punished in a way that allows us to harbor and fester anger inside of our hearts. For some of us, our understanding of hell is a way for us to excuse our unwillingness or our inability to love and offer forgiveness now. So we project onto God our inability to love our enemies or to imagine their rehabilitation, redemption, repentance. For some of us, it, it allows us to tap into and have a theological justification for tapping into kind of an us-versus-them mentality where the church is closed off to the rest of the world and there are easy boundary lines. And we are in and you are out. And we, we hope that these boundary lines are pure, faith in Christ, which does seem to be the boundary line drawn in the scriptures. But sometimes these boundary lines get distorted, and it's really people who aren't like us. People who don't talk like we talk or dress like we dress. And, and very quickly, we can become these, these people who just say, no, you dress in black, and you paint your nails black, and you listen to heavy metal, and so you, you must be on the way to hell. And we allow that to justify our feeling of weirdness or awkwardness around other people. We allow that to be a cover for certain activities or actions or, or attitudes. Now, this does not have to be the case, and this is not always the case. But I do think we must constantly be asking ourselves, what type of people are we, and what type of people are we becoming, and how do our beliefs shape us in that direction. In this passage, you have, I think, a beautiful vision for the church. And it might be a little surprising. The church is only mentioned here at one time. In verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. The church in new creation seems to stand in the place of the cosmos in the original creation. And there's one way of reading this text in which this narrows Christ's work in the world. And so now Christ is not mediating between God and all of the world, but simply between God and the church. And it's us versus them. And we're this small little enclave by ourselves, and the majority of humanity is, is unsaved and unsavable. And we simply hold on tight to the ship while everything else goes down. And there's another way, though, to read this passage, where, where the church is not narrowing down the scope of Christ so that all does not mean all, so that these two parallels don't connect as Paul seems to want them to connect. But instead where the church is a foretaste of the future full reconciliation, new creation, where the church is a kind of prophetic sign of what one day will be, where the community of God's people are a picture to the world of what all humanity one day will be. Where like Christ being the first fruits from the dead, the church is the first fruits of redeemed humanity. And in this picture, you have a challenge to the church, a challenge to the church to live faithfully, to do their living and speaking, to proclaim the good news to the rest of the world, to bear witness to what one day all human beings will participate in. 
you have the mission of the church perhaps energized even more so. When we look at these Moravian brethren, we ask what, what motivated them to, to go through such extreme lengths to share the gospel. Without the threat of hell, without needing a fear kind of based religion, we can read their works and see, we can read for ourselves what, what motivated them. The first thing that motivated them was a sadness of knowledge, knowing that so many human beings in the world still today sit under darkness, under the slavery of sin and Satan. Like Christ said, looking out into the crowd, seeing them like sheep without a shepherd, having compassion on them, they had compassion on the rest of humanity. And they said they need to know that they can be free. They need to know that life can be found and can be found and enjoyed now. And, and the urgency of the world around us demands that we bring them the light of Christ now and not just rest and hope one day it'll all work itself out. This is one of the primary motivations they had when spreading the good news of Christ. The other motivation they had, which is, is very interesting, is, is they said things like this. It seemed to be their primary motivation. The lamb who was slain must receive the full reward for his suffering. What motivated them was the idea that all of these people is what Christ deserves because of his work. And as he died, Hebrews tells us, with joy on his mind, they said the joy was the knowledge that what he was doing would be effective, would work itself out into creation, indeed into all of creation. And they say we we go out and we evangelize. We sell ourselves into slavery. Why? Because he must have what is his. And we want to give it to him. We want to be part of this process. We want to be a way that Christ receives the full reward that is his. We want to be conduits to the praises of every tribe and tongue, men, women, and children lifting up the praise that they have in Christ and worked out in and through their lives through the Holy Spirit. What is it that our beliefs form us into? What is it that our, our beliefs about all things, right? Who is God? God is triune. What are the scriptures as inspired? What is creation as God's work? What do these beliefs shape us and form us into? Or, or beliefs about heaven shape us and form us? I've, I've long been of the opinion that when we envision heaven as this immaterial, disembodied future state, it makes sense that we stop caring about our embodied physical state right now. Our beliefs about the future have real ramifications for us right now in the present. What is it that our beliefs about hell do to us now? And how we treat other people, how we pray for other people, how we hope for other people, how we minister to other people. It is, I think, the case that even a Christian universalist, which to many of us is the, the much newer way of looking at these texts, looking at the scriptures and thinking about the afterlife, that one can hold these views and 
and still be with, well within the bounds of Orthodox Christianity, still, still believe in the Scriptures, still believe in a triune God, still believe in salvation by grace through faith, not be unusually weak on sin or soft on sin and its consequences, but perhaps unusually strong on love and mercy and the consequences of Christ and his cross. And I might be hopeful but cautious that all men, all women, all children would be drawn to Christ. And they might be thrown back into their vocation as the church right here and right now. Christ's command to love our enemies, I think, is, is a great litmus test for so many things. It's, it's one of the hardest commands we have, if not the hardest. It's one of the ones that confronts us with kind of our cultural idolatry the most. I think particularly as Americans, I speak from within here, but really I think all human beings at some level. But we would rather kill our enemies usually, or be prepared to kill them than be prepared to love them or be prepared to even sacrifice our lives out of love for them. And, and Christ commands us, love your enemies. I mean, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear in the Gospels. In fact, I would argue and I would preach and I've written papers, this in many ways seems to be the most basic command for Christ, kind of the litmus test for discipleship. He, he says, if you want to be a son of the Most High, then you'll... Love all people in the Gospel of Luke and the Sermon on the Plain. He, he connects your identity as a son of the Father Most High to your commitment, to your ability, to your attitude of enemy love. Why? He says, because this is what God's like. God sends rain on the godly and the ungodly. Sunshine and darkness on all people. He loves indiscriminately. He sent his son to die for everyone. And yet, for many people, they'll say, well... I've been letting on a secret. He doesn't really love everyone. Or he loves everyone up until a certain point, and then the attitudes change and shift. And for some, a certain way of believing in hell gives them cover, throws shade over their inability or unwillingness to love their enemies. And perhaps that's worse, projects this back onto God himself. Says God Himself does not truly love His enemies. That's a temporary, potential, small thing happening here on the world, where, where, where some people who are enemies of God can be reconciled to Him. And others say, "No, God will be all in all one day." But perhaps, because of human freedom, this will mean just the abandonment of those who refuse to repent and accept. And for some, this makes much better sense of the, the judgment text, which seem to be final and not eternal and conscious. And then for, for some Christian universalists, they'll again say, it's not though destruction and death, the opposite of creation. Is that not, not only is it not the defeat of God's enemy, it's not the acceptance of God's enemy accomplishing his goal, eradicate that which God has brought into existence, which God's love and, and, and wants to sustain and, and redeem. I've maintained from the beginning that you can be a solid Christian and believe all three of these. I still think that. I'm still going to think that. But wherever you land, however you conceptualize this, 
however you put the text together, I want you, I want us to think deeply about how it shapes us. How does it affect how we view God and God's nature? How does it affect how we view us and our role and our purpose? How does it affect the way we relate to outsiders? How does it affect the way you and I progress in our lives, hopefully becoming more and more like Christ, becoming more and more Christ-like in our worship and in our prayers, in our speech, in our activity, in our relationships? Jesus says you can, you can tell what kind of a tree the tree is by what kind of fruit it bears. And I think this is often true of beliefs as well, doctrines as well. This is not to say that, that people might believe something and, and start to act in a wrong way, and it might not be connected to that belief, right? There might be another belief there that's really leading to that. Or it might not have to be that way. Perhaps someone could believe something and, and not end up this type of a person. But I think it to be somewhat common sense to, to look out onto certain beliefs inside of the Christian circle and see the type of people they consistently produce and go, let's at least red flag this. Let's at least say this is worth thinking about. If you believe this about God and, and a whole swath of people who believe this tend to be arrogant jerks, let's red flag this. Have you missed the base somewhere? Or even holding that belief, do we just need to reform things a little bit? Is there a better way to have that belief that, that doesn't really fuel you, fuel you into this, this path of discipleship, this certain progressing of what your character will be like, of what, what type of person you will more and more be formed and shaped into? It was interesting watching this, this stepfather who goes on this journey of hatred towards these, these young men, potentially misconvicted, and his belief, very firm, doing something in his heart, for his heart, that they'll burn eternally in hell, have no shot to get out of this. Then within his own lifetime, being like, I was wrong. Not wrong because he saw rehabilitation or, or repentance, but wrong because he thought from the very beginning I was off. And it, it kind of reinforced to me this aspect of humility that we've talked about. How easy is it for us to be wrong about things? The scriptures do talk about life and death, about the importance of our decisions the necessity of our repentance. It is not just the niceness of God that universalists place their hope in. No, it's the work of Christ and the ability through Christ to find reconciliation with God. It is the case, I think, that for those who hope for all to be reconciled, they they hold that as hope. It's speculative. There's, there's passages on both sides here. And we often really, whenever we read prophetic texts or eschatological texts, texts that seem to be talking about the future or last things, we kind of map that on to God and into eternity instead of really perhaps thinking a little bit deeper on what 
these belief systems or texts are doing. Like, our, our, our vision of the future, what we believe about the future as Christians, is really just a projection of what we believe about God and his work now. Eschatology, the belief on the future, is a belief about what must be true in the future if God is how we encounter him now present in Christ. And even for a Christian universalist, outside of Christ, there's death and destruction. If you want to plot that into eternity, then you would plot that as eternal death, as eternal separation, unreconciled from God. Perhaps that's not what the text's job is or purpose is. Perhaps not what, that's not what our purpose is, to speculate on that. Perhaps there's a way of seeing even these warnings as really just indicative of what is true now, what will be true of all times, which is that God has made a way in Christ for human beings to be reconciled. And even though many human beings stand outside of that reconciliation right now, this does not cause us to question whether it's true or not. In the same way that even before we subjectively placed our faith in Christ, we say, Jesus had died for us. In Colossians, repeatedly, he has rescued you in the past tense. Even while you were dead, he had made you alive. Why? Not because something you had done accomplished this work. No, because Christ had accomplished it. This reconciliation was accomplished at Calvary in the resurrection. And yes, when you come into the church, you experience it and you taste it. But it's not what makes it true. This is the case across the world right now, even for those outside of the church. They aren't outside of the church simply because that's their fate or their destiny. Because that's what must be or has to be. Perhaps they're outside with hope towards a future where more will taste what the church is currently tasting. Where the life of the redeemed people of God is a sign to the life of all human beings. And what a challenge is this, both to the world to be reconciled to God, but also to the church. I think some of our beliefs about heaven, some of our beliefs about hell, often serve a purpose of allowing us to find a lowest common denominator in the Christian life. So if religion is primarily about whether we'll go to heaven or hell after we die, then we just have to find out how many notches do we have to go to get that kind of fire insurance. And then it makes not much sense to keep going beyond that. If all I need to do is say a prayer and get baptized, I'll let other people sell themselves into slavery. And I'll kind of just enjoy as much as I can elsewise. The vision the scriptures gives us instead is a deep challenge to the church. Though imperfect and flawed, for their church to be a sign, a witness to the rest of the world of redeemed relationships, for age and gender and nationality, all the various divisions and barriers that are erected between humans and disrupt relationships where they are healed and overcome, where community is now an agent of peace and justice in the world. It's a deep calling. It's a calling that's not transactional. It just happens and then it's over. It's static. It's a calling that takes our whole life. 
It's a calling that takes us to take very seriously our formation as people and the way that we worship and the things that we believe and what it's doing in and to us and how it's equipping or, or mal-equipping us to serve our purpose in the world around us. Whatever it is we, we believe about these things, my prayer for all of us is that at the end of the day we would we would still be overcome with the magnitude of God's work in Christ. That we would understand our very own reconciliation as enemies of God brought close through the peace made with the blood of the cross. That that in itself would be understood. It's not something we deserved or that was easy for God to do for us, but it's much harder for other people. But like Paul, we'd say, we're the, the chief of sinners. If it can happen for me, it can happen for anybody. This doesn't close me off to the possibility of others. This opens me up to the possibility of others. This makes me want to devote my life to living and experiencing this truth and to building bridges, opening doors, keeping gates open for others to experience and live into these truths as well. The patristic fathers and mothers of our church. They often didn't speculate about precise details, what might be coming after death and the afterlife. But their writings are riddled with these passages where they catch a vision like the one in Colossians that's cosmic. It's huge that breaks imaginations. One of my favorites comes from Julian of, of Norwich, a, a church mother. And reflecting on the beauty of God, the power of Christ's victory, in light of the truth that so many things are broken and not well right now. And it's not to downplay this. Reflecting on it, she comes to this conclusion and repeats it over and over again that because of Christ, all things will be well. And all manner of things will be well. And every cell that's been created, every animal that exists, every human being that has breath, will find its end in Christ, and it will be a fitting end. It will be an end that makes sense. It will be an end that brings praise to God. It will end, it'll be an end that, she says, as well. All shall end well. Every manner of thing shall end well. Do we have the hope? Do we have the faith? Do we have the courage to believe that? And then, even in our disagreements about hell, do we have the courage and faith to have unity in diversity? And perhaps even in our disagreements about, about hell, proclaim witness to the rest of the world about a redeemed community living with one another, able to dialogue able to pray, able to read, and in and through those things, able to work towards a better and brighter and more hopeful future for all people through Christ and through his death and through his resurrection. I think that we can. I think that we have, and I hope that we will. Please pray with me.